The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Morning, church. How we doing? You loving fall? I don't know if it's like officially fall yet, but it's definitely fall, and I love it so much. So um, if you got a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, if you're new around here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, thankful that you'd be with us today. Uh, if you want to make yourself known, there's a gray and blue card in the seat back in front of you that you can fill out. Just let us know that you were here. Uh, those can go in the black boxes in the back at the end of the gathering, and uh, if there's any way that we can pray for you, our staff, our leadership loves to pray for our people. And so the back of that connect card is for prayer. You can fill that out and uh, drop it in those boxes as well or give it to me at the end of the gathering. But we would count it a privilege to be in prayer for you about whatever is going on in your life. Um, this is, as Mark mentioned, our week of waiting. And uh, if, you're, if, you're un- if you haven't been around, uh, we've been in conversation. Our elders have been in conversation with Bent Creek uh, Baptist Church since April. Uh, We made that announcement public um, in August that we are intending to uh, essentially come together as one church, them enfolding into our congregation, and then us uh, moving to their to that location, that becoming you know our our permanent location. And so uh, we're a week away. The vote of both churches is on October the 16th, and so uh, we wanted to take this week and just pray and fast and seek the Lord and. And our week of waiting is important, but it isn't so much about praying that the vote would go the way we want it to. Although there's nothing wrong with coming before the Lord and asking him for the things that you desire. What's important about our week of waiting is that it's about slowing down. It's about opening ourselves up to the Lord. It's about asking him to meet us there. It's about listening. And, and about God doing what only he can do in our hearts and, and in and through our community, regardless of how the vote comes out. And so we, we've been on this road a couple times with other churches in the past, and I always have said, if it happens, it's the Lord's provision. If it doesn't, it's the Lord's protection, but either way, Christ be praised. So listen, I'll meet under a tree if I have to. Like, I don't care. You might be uncomfortable, but you know, I've been to Africa, they meet, they got hundreds of people under a tree and and we can do that, okay? So this isn't about a building. This is about what God wants to do and are we willing to get on board with it, right? And so I just would implore you to pray with us. Um, we, We have a guide we put together. It's a PDF file. You can go to the info hub, which is just info.mdcashville.org. And uh, you'll see a button called Week of Waiting. You click that and you'll, you'll find the PDF file. And so what it has is uh, some prayers and some scripture readings for every day of this week. If you're inclined to fast, we would invite you to do that. Fasting is just uh, abstaining from a meal or from Netflix or, you know, you pick, okay? But if you want to fast and pray and use that time that you would use to watch Netflix or to eat lunch or whatever, uh, praying, that would be great. But uh, we're going to seek the Lord together this week and, uh, and then uh, we're going to have a vote, and and we'll say, we'll see how that turns out. But I anticipate that God is going to do some really cool stuff in your hearts, in my heart, and in this church uh, as we wait on Him together. Good. Okay, uh, we are working our way through the Book of Philippians, and 
if you remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. So he's in jail. He writes a letter to this church. This church, the church at Philippi, is facing opposition from outside. And as we'll learn in the book of Philippians, they're also facing some turmoil inside. So author in prison, opposition from outside, turmoil inside. And yet in the book of Philippians, we have uh, the, the words joy and rejoice mentioned more than any other place in the Bible. And so, so what we've tried to say in this series is we've got a lot to learn from Paul and from, from the Philippian church about how to reclaim our joy, a joy that only God can provide for us in this increasingly precarious and uncertain culture in which we live. Um, we seem to live in a world that is marked by division and anger and fear and stress. Um, I said this week one, I believe Marilyn Robinson, uh, the author said that the, the spirit of the age is one of joyless urgency. And even some of us, when we hear that, we feel it, right? Joyless urgency. And so um, we've been asking the question, how do we, as, as, a peop, as the people of God, embrace a joy that only Jesus can provide for us? And how do we put on display this otherworldly joy in this increasingly precarious and dark world in which we live? And so we're going to get some, uh, I wouldn't say answers, but some responses uh, to that here in Philippians chapter 2. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 12. You can follow along as I read uh, verses 12 to 18 is where we'll be this morning. And then I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in here. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, says this, Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted Generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come before you just grateful to be uh, in your presence and under the authority of your holy word. And so now would you do what only you can do through your word and by your spirit, which is to transform our hearts, to teach us, to shape and mold us into the image of Christ. There, there is no power in my words but there's power in your word. And so as we proclaim your word, as I attempt to rightly divide your word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me and that something that is said this morning would be of benefit to these people, that you would bring some from death into life, that others would be encouraged, that others would be challenged, when others would be called to repentance and that all of us would, would leave this room this morning knowing that we have heard from the Lord. So we ask this, for our good and for your glory, we pray in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Okay, so some of you on the you know, sort of first reading of this passage might've been like, there's not a ton here. Like, what are we gonna talk about for 
40 minutes. Um, I got plenty, so don't worry about that. Um, if you're a note taker, I'll give you my first point and then we'll start talking about it. Uh, and it is this, working with the Lord. Working with the Lord. Verses 12 and 13 here. He says again, therefore, my beloved, or beloved if you're American, I guess, uh, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're working with the Lord. He starts this paragraph by saying, therefore, which obviously uh, you've heard anytime you read the Bible, it says, therefore, you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. Uh, And of course, he's referring to everything that he talked about before. Uh, Last week, Pastor Mark walked us through uh, verses one through 11 in in Philippians uh, chapter two and how the, the richness of the incarnation, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he came and lived a perfect, humble, obedient life, obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, that he died a sacrificial death in our place for our sins. And now having defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell by the blood of his cross, Jesus is risen. He is exalted on high as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And one day he will return and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. Won't he do it? And because of that, Paul now says, Therefore, in light of that, in light of that glorious, amazing truth of who Jesus is, my beloved, continue to walk in obedience. Now, I love that he uses the phrase beloved here because it shows us how much this community of faith means to him. We referenced this at the beginning of the series, how this, this community must have had a special place in Paul's heart. He visited them at least three times. And as he writes to them, he's full of affection. Uh, in, in chapter one, he talks about how it's right for him to feel this way, right? He has this affection for them. He doesn't feel that way for everybody, right? Like, I mean, in his letters to the Corinthians, he's a little harsh at times. In his letter to the Galatians, he's basically like, dear Galatians, why are you walking away from Jesus? But here he's like, I, I love these people. They're my beloved. He has this intense affection because they're special to him. And he says to them, as you have obeyed, now continue to obey. What does that mean? Well, think back to uh, chapter one, if you were with us. Verse, verse 27 in chapter one, he talked about letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, right? In other words, the, the citizenship that they have is a citizenship of heaven, not of earth. And the way that they conduct themselves ought to reflect that. It's not that they're um, trying to earn something from God. They already have something. They have citizenship in a new kingdom. And so live that out. As you have obeyed, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, um, glad submission to the Lord Jesus and everything that he commands us in his scripture. Um, the gospel is not just something we believe, it's something we obey. I don't know if you know that. Uh, in Romans chapter six, for instance, Paul uh, writing to the Romans says, um, you were slaves of sin, but now you, have, you are slaves to righteousness and you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. That's the gospel, okay? Uh, in Second Thessalonians, he talks about how those will be judged who do not obey the gospel. So there's this sense in which 
the good news of Jesus comes to us, and I say this every week and will continue to until the day I die, Lord willing. Um, uh, Jesus lives a life we couldn't, perfect, sinless, above reproach, right? He dies the death we deserve in our place, taking judgment and wrath on himself because of our failure to live perfectly and sinlessly and above reproach. He rises from death and we receive the glorious truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins with empty hands of faith. We come with empty hands. We just sang about it, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the, that is what happens. And as we do so, the truth of the gospel sinks into our souls to the degree that we begin to walk it out. We begin to walk in obedience to Christ, not to get something from him, but because we already have everything in him. That's what he's talking about here. From the first day you believed until now, you have walked in faith and obedience to Christ. Keep going. And then he says this crazy line, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And some of us read that and we go, time out. What? <laughs> I thought salvation was by faith, not works. Well, it is by works, just not yours. It's by the perfect works of Jesus. It's by our faith in the, the finished work of Christ. So yes, salvation is by faith. Notice he doesn't say here, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work toward your salvation with fear and trembling. We know this. We're not earning anything. Salvation comes from God. He even references it in verse 13. Look at verse 13. For it is who? Class? God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is the initiator. God works and then you work. God initiates and you respond. This is how, this is how it happens. Um, God came to us. He opened our eyes to the reality of Jesus. He opened our hearts to receive that finished work of Christ on the cross. He did it. Salvation is a work of God in which he awakens dead souls. Uh, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but made alive by him, right? Given the ability to even open our hands and receive the finished work of Jesus for our salvation. But then we respond, We repent, turning from sin and tr trusting in him. We trust, we follow, we obey by the power of God's spirit within us. So salvation is God's work. He gives us his spirit. And then from that point forward, God initiates and we respond. God initiates and we respond. We are working with him, him always the foundation and the initiator and us always responding to the promptings of God's spirit, to the conviction of his word. You understand? This is how we grow. This is sanctification, God initiating us, responding, us working out what God has worked into us. So our obedience to Christ flows from a salvation already accomplished. He works it in, we work it out with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Hmm. I thought 1 John 4 said that the perfect love of God casts out all fear. 
So what, what does he mean here with fear and trembling? Uh, Paul uses this phrase at least three times in the New Testament. So I think, I think, stepping away from revelation of God, I think that this is a colloquialism. Paul says to the Corinthians, I came to you with much fear and trembling. Okay? But it has to do with not afraid of, although God is to be feared for sure, right? The majesty, the glory, the beauty, the mercy, and the wrath of God are awesome and frightful. But in Christ, we are not afraid of God. We revere God. We honor him. We humble ourselves before him. And we say, I want to please him. Fear and trembling. The easiest way I can sort of get at this, and this is super weird and corny, but just follow me here. Um, How many of you have ever met or kind of been in the same room as like either a celebrity or like a uh, athlete or someone in high power and authority, and you were in the same room with them when you met them. Raise a hand. How many of you? Okay. Okay. Now, how many of you, be honest here, when you came in contact with that person, you got a little nervous and you kept thinking to yourself, don't be an idiot. Anybody? Just me? Okay. So most of us. Okay. So because you're like, no, celebrity, whatever, right? They put their pants on the same way we do probably, but But there's something about, oh, this person is like a big deal, right? And I don't want to be a moron in front of them, right? Uh, this is stupid, but I, I, um, I was downtown in Raleigh one time, and uh, I was at this pastor's conference, and there was like one of the big name guys was, was going to be there. And, uh, and so I'm walking down the street, and he's walking down the street, and he stops me, and he asks me if I know where a coffee shop is, and I'm not from Raleigh, <laughs> So I had no idea. And I started to try to say something. I was like fumbling all the words out of my mouth. And, I, and then he like, was like, thanks, and walked away and shook his head. And I was like, oh, <laughs> such an idiot, right? It's, okay, so to an infinitely higher degree, you are standing before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator and sustainer of all things. And all you want to do is please him. And all you want to do is honor him. And all you want to do is not be a moron in front of him, right? Like I'm wanting to, there's fear and trembling. There's reverence and proper humility before the, the king of kings, the exalted one to whom every knee will bow. And so as we together, as we Look at Christ in all of who he's, the, the, the scripture says he is in verses 6 through 11, right? Who humbled himself and, 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 and was obedient to the point of death and is now exalted. We marvel at who he is. We are in awe that God would love his creation so much that he would send his only son to die for us. We, we marvel at it and we we marvel at the fact that he's currently even at work in us, as verse 13 says. And that together brings us humility and creates a desire in us to honor him, to please the Lord both as individuals and as a community. We want the culture of this place to be one that has high reverence, takes God very seriously, takes ourselves not so seriously. So his point essentially is, therefore, live lives like Jesus, with Jesus, for Jesus, by the power that Jesus gives through his spirit. 
Now, that raises a question for me. Are we working with the Lord? Are we working with him? Do we sense conviction, uh, challenge, encouragement from the Lord, and are we willing to respond to it? Do we even want to? What is God working into us, and are we working it out? Uh, if you, you know, I think even if, if you are honest and you're like, you know what, I just, I mean, I come to church and it's fine, but I just don't, I don't have the desire. Well, thanks for being honest. And I'd encourage you to, to pray uh, Psalm 119.36. Psalm 119.36 says, incline my heart, O Lord. You have, you have the freedom to actually ask God to change your heart. He says here in the text that uh, he changes uh, our will, right? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He makes the unwilling willing. All you gotta do is ask him. All right, you guys with me so far? So not only are we working with the Lord, but secondly, we are shining for the Lord. Look at verse 14. Do all things... In the original language, that means all things. <laughs> Do everything, all things, without grumbling or disputing. Uh-oh. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain shining for the Lord. So in light of who Jesus is, in light of all that Jesus has done and is doing in us, Paul says, here's a way to work that out. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. And we're like, can, is there another one you could say, Paul? Like, can we, let's do all things, do everything without grumbling. That means complaining or disputing, just like Jesus. Isaiah 53, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and yet he opened not his mouth. First uh, Peter 2, he was reviled, but he did not revile in return, but continued entrusting himself to the Father. Now, when I read the scripture, <clears throat> I ask questions of the text. I would encourage you to do that as well. So as, as I'm reading... Philippians 2, he says, do not, uh, in, in all things, do not grumble or complain. And I think to myself, well, why would he have to tell the Philippians that? <laughs> and the answer is because they're humans, <laughs> right? Because apparently they must have been struggling with grumbling and disputing. Just like we do. Grumbling, again, meaning complaining. Out of our mouths come complaints, come uh, griping, come uh, you know, whining, if you will, about our circumstances or situations or why people won't do what we want them to do and all that kind of stuff. Disputing can be translated as arguing. Okay, some of your translations might say that. But another layer of that, which I think actually might be getting at what, what Paul intends here, is that this word disputing can be translated as thoughts. Or in other words, the inner dialogue of the heart that leads us to the vocalizing of complaints. So perhaps Paul is saying, not only don't complain, but don't even entertain the thoughts that lead you to complain. (laughs) 
Now, let's think about this. Where does complaining come from? Where does grumbling and disputing and all that come from? Does it not come from joylessness? Is it not rooted in joylessness? I, I am not content. I do not have joy in my current circumstance. And so therefore I feel justified in complaining, in griping, in disputing. And all that complaining and disputing does is feed my discontentment, which then leads to more grumbling and complaining and lack of joy. Are you following? Does that track with anybody? And when we get caught in that cycle of joylessness leading to complaining, leading to more discontent leading to more joylessness and complaining and all that. Man, that looks a whole lot like the world and a whole, a whole lot not like the one who saved us out of the world. And this is why, one of the reasons of many, one reason why critics of Christianity will make comments, and, and in some ways they're justified in doing so. You, you've probably heard the, uh, the famous quote from Gandhi. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians because they look nothing like your Christ. And that indictment is oftentimes justified that we as followers of Jesus do not look like Jesus because we, are, we look like the rest of the world in our grumbling and complaining and disputing. Brothers and sisters, God did not call us to be a living denial of who he is, but a living proof. And during the Exodus journey, the people of God, Israel, did nothing. If you've read... <laughs> Exodus, you know, they did nothing but grumble and complain and whine and lament and, 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 and accuse God of all kinds of things and argue. And God called them in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He actually called them a crooked and twisted generation. Exactly the phrase that Paul uses here. He couldn't work with them. Okay. Because they refused to avail themselves to what God was up to. And that entire generation had to die off in the wilderness. Now you and I still live in a crooked and twisted generation. One that is so turned in on itself. Uh, we are, as a world, as a culture, okay? We are proud. We are self-important. We are self-righteous. We are entitled, we are insecure, we are anxious, we are fearful, we are angry. And everywhere you turn, there's grumbling and complaining and arguing and disputing. which feeds the self-righteousness and the entitlement and the insecurity and the anxiousness and the fear and the anger. How can we who have experienced the forgiveness and the acceptance and the approval and the love of Jesus Christ, how can we give ourselves to arrogance and entitlement and grumbling and discontentment? We, we are called, he says, to be blameless and innocent in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. 
but it means we're to live with integrity and to, and to live with a compelling purity of heart that, that shines like a light in a dark room. And the darker the room is, the darker the world gets, the brighter our light is supposed to shine. He goes on to say, uh, shining, let's see, verse 15, you be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to Jesus. The only way that we will shine is to hold fast to Christ. Again, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I cling to Jesus and him alone. I cling to the promise of the gospel. I cling to this message of life in a culture of death. And and as I cling to him, and as the gospel sort of drills itself down into my soul, I find that I am more joyful and less arrogant and less entitled and less grumpy and less complaining, right? And as we do that together as a community, the atmosphere of this place becomes otherworldly. And when and we look forward to being with our brothers and sisters on Sunday mornings and in community groups because when we come from all of the rage and arguing out there and we come in here we feel lifted by the presence of God and we feel encouraged by our brothers and sisters and we find our our joy is sort of reignited and that fuels us up to go back out into discouragement and arguing and complaining with a little flicker of light in a dark world. And then we come back in and we get fueled up again. And that's the cycle, right? But as we go out there, more people go, hey, why are you shining? Can I get in on that? And they go, come on, right? And then they come in and they sense the atmosphere and the the ethos of, of heaven on earth. And they go, I want part of that because out there stinks. And people experience the glory of Jesus in this place. And that's the work of ministry. He says, I, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. It occurred to me, the work of pastoral ministry is laboring and running so that you will hold fast to Jesus and endure. And today happens to be Pastor Appreciation Day and October happens to be Pastor Appreciation Month. And all I want from you is for you to acknowledge and give thanks to and encourage your elders, particularly those who have other real jobs and then elder on top of that. <laughs> so we got Ryan Krishnan right here. Jimmy, had to, he's actually ministering to someone right now. So he left, Jimmy Branch, Mark Knox, okay? And then Larry and I get a paycheck, so we don't count as much. But, <laughs> but these five, these, myself and these other four men, they labor, they run so that you will hold fast to Jesus. And if nothing else, just thank them and encourage them because it's tough, it's hard. Are we shining? Um, Or do we look like the darkness? 
No. Does, does the light of Christ in us actually make a difference or do we look just like the rest of this dark and broken and busted up world? Now, one last, one last thing. You guys still hanging in? Yes. Verse 17. Uh, my title for this is resting in the Lord. So we have working with the Lord and we have shining for the Lord, but finally resting in the Lord. It's a little bit of a quirky last couple of verses here, but let's read them. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I think that's the third time in like four verses that Paul uses the word joy or rejoice. As I said, this book mentions it more than any other in the Bible. Earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul in jail said, you know what, I'm, whether I die or live, whatever, but I think, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be getting out of jail. And when I do, I'm, when I am released, uh, I hope to come visit you again. But now he's couching it. He says, but if that doesn't happen, if I don't make it out, remember to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's essentially saying here, it would be a privilege to pour out my life in service of Christ because of your faith. He is so confident in the legitimacy of the, of the faith of these Philippian believers that he says, even if I have to give my life in service of your faith, I'm honored to do it. A drink offering in the Old Testament was offered as a compliment to the sacrificial offering. So if you were going to the temple and you offered a bull or a lamb or whatever, uh, you would offer that meat right on the altar. And then a drink offering of wine would be poured out after that on top of that as a supplement, as a compliment. So you got the meat and you got the drink. It's a full meal. Okay. So Paul is saying, look, I see you Philippians and I see that you're living in Philippi together as a countercultural community in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, you are, you are giving your sacrificial offering, your lives, Romans 12, are a living sacrifice, right? You are honoring Jesus. You are loving one another. You are being generous, all those things. And that is a sacrificial offering that you are giving for the joy and glory of God. And because of that, you endure, you maintain to the end. It's my honor to find my eternal rest in him by offering my life to complement your faith. He's, he's essentially saying, look, once again, he's reiterating, the key to a joy-filled life is Jesus first, others second. Jesus first, others second, which is the only proper response to Christ's work. And Paul, once again, is just emulating his savior. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he feasted with his disciples, right? And as they're gathered around the table, towards the end of the meal, he takes the bread and he lifts it up and he says, hey, uh, I want you to eat of this. This bread represents my body, which is gonna be broken for you. It's gonna become a sacrificial offering for the sin of the world. And I want you to eat this bread. He, took, he takes the cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This wine will be poured out. My blood will be poured out as a drink offering on top of the sacrificial offering of my body, my life. And, and I'm not gonna drink this fruit again until we feast together in the kingdom. And so just imagine that for a second. Just put yourself, put yourself at the table with the disciples. And it's starting to dawn on you that Jesus actually might be the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. 
you're, you're starting to realize he, he is the high and exalted king who came to earth and made himself nothing. That he took on human flesh and he lived this life of humility and service and constant misunderstanding and constant rejection and even now facing brutality. That this God who became flesh is actually giving his very flesh as a sacrificial offering for my sin and folly and failure. That his blood is going to be poured out on the cross as he promised it would. And it's, and why? All because, all so that he can take these stubborn, foolish, rebellious, restless hearts and allow us to find our rest in him. So it occurs to me in this passage, the greatest challenge for us is not to stop complaining and grumbling and whining and disputing, okay? If that was the point, I could have been done 20 minutes ago and just been like, Paul says, stop whining, let's have communion, you know? That's not it. This is, this is not, the greatest challenge in this passage is you actually believing that you are the beloved of God. When Paul says, my beloved, he's speaking as a representative of God. Paul's beloved are not, not going to be God's beloved, right? So if Paul says, you're my beloved, he's speaking the words of God to the people. You are God's beloved. And so therefore you're my beloved. So, so think about that for a second. What would happen if you actually, if your heart would actually open up enough to receive the truth that you are ferociously loved by the God of the Bible? There's a passage in Deuteronomy, I won't turn to it because I'm running short on time, but it, he, he basically says, um, Israel, I did not choose you because you were the greatest and biggest and best show on earth. I chose you because you were the smallest and also because I love you. So like what would happen if, if all of us in the room actually could for a moment open our hearts up enough to believe that God looked down at humanity and he, he looked at me and he didn't go, well, there's an all-star. But he went, there's a train wreck and I love her or I love him with all, with all of my folly, with all of my sin, with all my questioning, with all my doubting, with all of my insecurity, with all of my crazy, God looked down. He went, I love you just because I love you. And I love you so much that I'm going to send Jesus, my only begotten son to live a life you could never live to die a death that you absolutely deserve and to rise again, conquering sin, death, and hell for you so that if you would receive with empty hands the, the finished work of Jesus, you can be welcomed in and have the right to be called a child of the most high God. Yes. Fully loved. Jesus, look, if you are in Christ, God cannot love you any more than he already does and he will not ever love you any less than he does right now. And if your heart would open up and, and receive that glorious truth that you are the beloved of God and you will hold fast to Jesus, it'll produce in you a joy like no other. 
and it will eliminate from your mind, your heart, and your mouth any of this self-focused grumbling, complaining that's out there. And you and I together will become a compelling light in the darkness for God's glory and the good of this city. But it starts with knowing I am loved. We are not striving for, we are not working for, we are, we are working from a salvation already accomplished. Amen?